0: Well, Bible's Mark, chapter 8. Open them on up. We're teaching through the gospel according to Mark. It's been a great journey. And we are yeah, we're almost halfway. So I got to read something funny. My uh my niece, her name's Kate. She's uh she's 4 years old. And uh she she goes here. Yeah, they go here, mate. Right. Anyways, um so she said this funny thing the other day. She, she said, uh, she came up to her mom, Tanya. and She said, Mom, I want to sing on a stage with a microphone. Um, so Tanya told her, well, maybe you could ask Uncle Sam if you could help lead worship sometime. All right, she's four. She's a little pigtail, super cute. Right? And she says, uh, she replied quickly, no, Mom, then no one would be looking at me because they'd all be looking at their Bibles. <laughs> I just thought that was so cute. That is so cute. What I love about that is that you guys look at your Bibles, and she can tell that. Isn't that amazing what a four-year-old can, can can tell, can perceive? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what we're holding in our lap right now or in our hands. God, is so good to know that we have ultimate truth, ultimate reality right in front of us, that we just have to open our eyes and open our hearts. God, we do recognize this morning that we could be sitting in the presence of you. We could be hearing your words. We could be in the midst of your people and still be unbelievers and still not believe what we're reading, still not believe what we're seeing. So this morning, God, I pray not only that we would engage our minds, but that we would open our hearts. The Father, you would protect us from the areas of our life that we might try to shut you out. We might try to block you from seeing the reality of what's really going on in our hearts. God, we need heart work this morning. Uh, we're all heavy. We all come in here this morning with heaviness, Lord, so we put on smiles and we, and we pretend like our life is roses, but God, we have hard things. Yeah. We have areas in our life that we carry burdens. Yes. And Jesus, we need your yoke this morning. So would you do what you do so well, Rabbi? Yeah. We're your apprentices. We want to sit at your feet and be shaped to think like you. And I pray you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You and I are a creation in formation. You are a created being, and God created you in a particular way. He created you in order to be formed. From the second that you're born, from the second that you come into this world, you're in formation. Everything that you experience, especially as a kid, you ever notice that kids just, they just are able to soak up so much. They just are able to be formed and shaped so easily. From the second we're a kid, we're just soaking information. God created us with this special ability to be shaped. Even as adults, you know, adults, like they say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can, actually. It's... uh, there's neuroplasticity, you know, your brain has these neural pathways and, and, and through repetition and things, you can actually change the, the cognitive makeup of your mind. You can be formed, you can be changed, and all of us, make no mistake, are being formed. You're being formed right now. You're being formed right now. The question isn't if you're being formed, the question is how are you being formed? What are you being formed into or by, and who, are, pardon me, what are you being formed by and who are you being formed into? That's the question. It's not if you're being formed, it's who are you being formed by? What are you being formed into? What is forming you? God's chief concern for you as a, on a, a purely human level, particularly for believers, is not what he would do through you, but what he wants to do in you. He is in the business of formation. He's in the business of formation, of forming you into the image of his son. That's his ultimate and chief concern. From birth, you've really had a blend of different things that have made you who you are. Uh, One of them is called the Imago Dei. Did you know that you were shaped, you were formed when you were born into the image of God? You bear, you carry some of God's person into this world. Even if you're the, the worst, most wretched sinner in the whole world, you still bear some of God's image. So that has formed you. You also carry this, um, this other formation that you got from birth, and that is the sinful nature that was passed down from your father, Adam, right? Those two things are given to you at birth. And then you go through life, and as you're going through life, you pick up more formation. You pick up formation from the world. The world is ultimately ruled by what the Bible calls the prince of the power of the air. And his ultimate goal is rather really than to form you, it's more to deform you. See, Satan is in the job of deformation. He wants to affect you from the image of Christ. He wants to make you look like anything, listen, anything but the image of Christ. Because Jesus' image, Jesus' person is the ultimate human being and he is ultimate reality. He is the ultimate person. So Satan's job, Satan's uh, goal is to deform you from the image of Christ. But the Holy Spirit is always at work. He's always at work. He's always at work calling and drawing human beings into this thing called for formation. You know, the Bible paints this, this pretty clearly. Jesus gives lots of analogies and examples of this, this sort of um, supernatural work that happens behind the curtain. If you could peel back the curtain right now between each person in this room, you would see a battlefield of formation. You would see the enemy and the world and the flesh and the devil attempting to form someone, and you would see God attempting to form someone, and there's inner conflict. In every single person in here, there's inner conflict. One of the uh, analogies that Jesus gave of this was he talked about the, um, uh, the parable of the seeds. You know, Jesus is there preaching the gospel to the crowds and from the disciples' vantage point. It's just Jesus preaching to a bunch of crowd. But Jesus says, in fact, if you could see behind the curtain what you would see... You would see uh, that there's seed being cast to all of these different kinds of soil, and the seed is good seed, but the soil is not neutral. The soil is varied. Some of the soil falls onto hard ground and it just sort of bounces off. Some of the and it's instantly eaten by the birds. Some of the soil falls into shallow or some of the seed, pardon me, falls into shallow soil, and and the sun immediately scorches. There's all these enemies to the formation of the gospel seed. And that's really what happens in the world. The gospel is good news, and it has the power to form you into the image of Christ. But the enemy is at work trying to deform you from the image of Christ. Another analogy Jesus gives is that of leaven. Okay, leaven. And Jesus actually uses leaven in two different ways, both to describe formation. And This is important. Listen. The first way is in a negative or in a positive way. He says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is is where God is ruling, it's where Christ is made king, which is breaking into this world through Jesus. The kingdom of God is like leaven. It's this small, insignificant, seemingly uh, invisible kind of a reality that, that goes into this lump and then it grows and it grows and it expands and then eventually it takes over the whole lump. So Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like leaven. But then there was another place, we're actually going to look at this this morning, there was another place where Jesus used leaven in a negative sense. He said not only is the kingdom formation like leaven, the world's formation, the, the, uh, Satan's formation is also like leaven. It also is small. It also is seemingly insignificant. But if it's allowed, it will grow and it will consume and it will take over the entirety of the lump. So, the way that the leaven of the gospel expands the kingdom of ultimate reality through formation is the same way that the leaven of unbelief expands in the kingdom of non reality through deformation. Okay? You're saying, Sam, that's just a bunch of big concepts. Okay, well, stick with me, it'll come back around. If you don't know who's forming you, it's probably not Christ. If you don't know who's forming you, it's probably not Christ. In our text this morning, we see a physical example of this inner turmoil between the formation of the world and the formation of Christ. The deformation of of Satan in the unbelief through uh, crowds and through Pharisees and through disciples. And we see Jesus trying to combat that with formation into Christ. We see just how strong and deep seated the formation of the world truly is, even in the hearts of the disciples. We see the conflict of the human will as it struggles to move from comprehension to possession. And we see three, or we see Jesus, the master teacher, fighting to form himself and to form his thinking into the hearts and the mind of these stubborn 12 men. You know, Mark really largely is a story about, about Jesus trying to form 12 men. And, and it's hard work. <laughs> He's been at it for a year now. And these guys are, are way underwhelming. They're very underwhelming. Okay? They, they just aren't really getting it. In our text, we're going to see three groups of people. First, we're going to see the curious crowds. The curious crowds. These are people that are not yet believers, but they're interested. They're considering letting Christ form them. They're at the table. They're curious. They're listening. The second group we're going to see is uh, the, the willfully ignorant antagonists of the Pharisees those that are simply trying to shut down Jesus. They've been wholly taken over by this deformation process. And then we're going to see a group of confused and conflicted apprentices, namely the 12 disciples. 12 guys that are still trying to work out what in the world Jesus is doing. And he's graciously going to help them do that. So let's, let's pop into the text. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, we 're going to see here the healing or pardon me the the feeding of the four thousand. Did you guys know there 's actually more than one feeding of the crowds there 's actually the feeding of the five thousand and then Jesus does it again, the feeding of the four thousand except this time the last time would have been close to twenty thousand because it was only counting the men. This time it actually would have been about four thousand so a much smaller crowd. So Jesus is, if you remember, Jesus is in Gentile territory. He left um, the Galilee, the the western bank, I should say, of the Galilee where most of the Jews uh, lived. And he went up, spent some time in Tyre and Sidon where he met the Syrophoenician woman and uh, had this dialogue with her about the bread and the crumbs from the table. We talked about that last week. And then Jesus headed south to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee where it was primarily inhabited by Gentiles, non-Jews. And Jesus is preaching there. And this is where we pick up the story, verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So this is interesting. It's, it's similar to the first feeding, but it's a little different. Um, in the first feeding, the disciples, remember they tapped Jesus on the shoulder and said, hey, uh, rabbi, it's getting late. These guys are hungry. Let's send them into the town. Here instead, it's three days of preaching. Instead of a long afternoon, this has been a three-day preaching conference. And these, are, these Gentiles are in a less populated area. They've been in the wilderness. They're, they're far beyond out of food. And so Jesus takes the initiative here and he tells the disciples that he has compassion on them. And he says, you know what, these guys might not make it home because they're so hungry. Uh, they've been so focused and saturated on, the, on feeding on the words of Jesus that they didn't actually take the time to feed on um, the, the food that they needed to, to be sustained. So Jesus compassionately says, let's, let's feed them. Just a little side note here. Uh, These guys, uh, they're not worried about food. They're worried about listening to Jesus. They're worried about the words that he is giving them. And consequentially, Jesus takes care of them. Okay, now this is just a side note. But I don't know how many times you guys experience this where you just know you don't have time to read your Bible. Like, I I got I got stuff to do. I got to get up. I got to get ready. I got to go to work. And, And it just feels like, you know, sitting before the words of the Lord, I just don't have time right now. I just want you to remember this passage next time you think that. I just don't, if I, if I sit before the words of the Lord, I might die of hunger. Jesus will take care of that. He's going to work it out. I can't tell you how many times, especially on a Sunday morning, I get here and I'm thinking all this stuff i got to do to get ready for church. i got to go over my sermon. i got to think about it. And I'm thinking, you know, I should just take 20 minutes and just sit with the Lord. And I think, I don't have time for that. And then I do it and I realize, you know, I didn't have time to not do this. It's like sharpening the axe. It just makes everything so much easier. These people are not concerned about their sustenance. They're worried about the, f- the, the food that Jesus is giving them in terms of the teaching. Verse 4, and here's where it gets interesting. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Wow. My thoughts, exactly. Wow. Wow. In the words of Terry, thank you. Wow. What in the world? You're serious? I mean, Jesus has got to be looking at these guys thinking, I knew I picked some dull tools, you know, but man, you guys are thick, right? Why is that so weird? Because he just fed 20,000 people, remember? He just gave them this lesson. What was the lesson? That Jesus is capable of producing bread out of thin air. He, He can multiply bread and create food to feed these guys, and instantly they're confused. And here we begin to see really the thread that I want to pull throughout this narrative, and that is that there's something off here with the disciples. They're not where they ought to be. Though, you know what this should have looked like is, is Jesus should have uh, brought this up like he did, and they should have gone, hey, you should do that thing again. Remember that one thing? The thing where you made the thing? Lots of things. You turned the thing into lots of things. You should do that thing, right? And, and Jesus would be like... Blessed are you for having faith. And he would do it, right? Because he speaks in King James. That's what should have happened, right? But that's not what happens. What happens is they go, Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these guys? Come on. Come on. Verse 5. He asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus is so patient. He could have just totally railed them right there. He didn't. He saved it for later in our passage. Um, They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, just like he did last time. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, just like last time, left over, except this time they have seven baskets full of broken pieces, the crumbs, if you will, of this abundant feast. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, now what are we to think of this feeding? Uh, well, for one, this is rightly interpreted by most scholars as being a tipping of the hand to the inclusion of the Gentile world. Because remember, Jesus is ministering to the Gentiles. And so just like Jesus was the Messiah, the bread of life, the sufficient, sustaining life for Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 baskets, the 12 disciples, now he's in a Gentile region and he is a sufficient food, a a sufficient meal, a sufficient shepherd for the Gentile world too. Okay, now that's, that's very true. But I don't know if that's necessarily what Mark has intended for us to see here. I think what Mark has intended for us to see is the thickness of the disciples because Jesus just taught them the lesson again. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, I told you this before, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only, it's one of two miracles that's in every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. One of those two is the resurrection, pretty big deal. The other is what? The feeding of the 5,000. What does that tell us? It tells us that the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach through the feeding of the 5,000 was really important, it was huge, it was catalytic, it was groundbreaking, it was the, uh, a breakthrough moment, it was meant to be this just sort of like, like glass roof shattering moment for the disciples where this light bulb was supposed to go on and they're supposed to go, oh, you're the bread of life, you're the good shepherd, you're the Messiah, you're fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies of how God is going to feed his sheep. But they didn't, they missed it. And so Jesus graciously lines up and throws them another one. Here you go again. What do you think? Can you hit this one? What do you think? Are they going to hit it? Are they going to get it? I don't think so. The point Jesus is trying to teach them is the same point he was trying to teach them before and they simply are not getting it. There's a little side note here I just want you to maybe jot down and that is that proximity to Jesus does not ensure conformity to Jesus. These guys had the front row seats to the miraculous works and the clear teachings of Jesus. They had all reasons to believe, every reason to know who he was, and they still don't. I'm glad you're here, thankful that you're here, but don't ever assume that just because you're here you're letting Jesus do work in your life because it's very easy to sit and listen and not be changed. I did it for a decade longer when i was a kid i just sat at church listening to sermons wasn't a believer just they just pinged off me like the seed on the hard ground and as we'll see the more that you tune out god's hand the better you get at it that's kind of frightening now verse 11 juxtaposed to the curious crowds whom jesus is very compassionately caring for now we see the willfully ignorant antagonists A.K.A. the Pharisees, verse eleven. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now the Greek gives away the goal of these guys. Um, they're not there to test him in a sense of, "Hmm, I wonder if Jesus really is the Messiah." Let's let's go find out. As though they're actually um, objective, as though they're actually open to the truth. They're not. The word seek is actually to gain control of or to master over. It's the same word that's used when Jesus' family was going to come take captive him because they thought he was crazy for not eating food, remember? Uh, so they're, they're actually coming to try to dominate him. They're coming to try to, to rule him. They're coming to try to show him up. Because remember, these guys are professional lawyers. They're professional religious people, and Jesus is making them look bad. He's making them look really bad. The word test here um, does not mean an objective test. It means to discover, or it doesn't mean to discover merit. It means to put an obstacle or a stumbling block to discredit. And that's what they're trying to do here with Jesus. They want to discredit, disassemble, they want to obscure the message of Christ because it's incompatible with their false religious system. They're threatened. We talked about last week, they're like an immune disorder, they're fighting the Savior because they don't want to be saved. Now, what are they asking Jesus to do? They're asking him for a sign. And you might be thinking to yourself, haven't they seen the signs? Well, I'd I'd like you to know there's a difference between signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, okay? Wonders are miracles, and they've seen plenty of them. They've seen the, fighting of fi- the feeding of the 5,000. They've probably seen the feeding of the 4,000. They've seen the raising of, uh, of a dead girl. They've seen the sight to the blind, the hearing to the deaf. They've seen these wonders, um, but because their hearts are so hardened, they're saying, but now we need a sign. Well, What's a sign? A sign is where God intervenes in su- such a way that, that is, is so obvious. A sign is like what happened to Mary when, when an angel appeared to her. A sign is like what happened at the baptism. When the Father spoke from heaven, which, by the way, I think the Pharisees were there for that. I think they were aware of that. A sign is like when Jesus began glowing on the Mount of Transfiguration. A sign is when Jesus climbed out of the grave and appeared. Uh, But the sign they were probably looking for is that of like a celestial appearance. Hey, where's the angels? Why aren't they here telling us that this is... So the reality is they're not really looking for more proof. They're looking to shut down Jesus. That's what they're looking for. And they find this this way that they can do this. Um, you know, <laughs> Jesus had a lot to say about these guys looking for signs. We'll look at this in a minute. Uh, but speaking of, of of people not being satisfied with uh, what you're showing them to show that you are who they say they are, when I was 17, I tried going on this, this missions trip. It was a local trip to Mississippi. And I didn't have a driver's license. Yeah, I know. Okay, I waited till I was 18. Failed my test twice. I know. Okay. Um, but I did get it. So... I don't have a driver's license, and I got to get on the airplane. I don't have a passport. And so I Googled it. I'm like, well, what do I do to get on the plane? And they're like, well, you got to show your birth certificate and your social security card. So I think I called my mom. Mom, can you, can you mail me? Because I was down south. I'm like, can you mail me this stuff? Sure, don't lose it. You know, okay. Um, so I get it, and I got my, like, my actual birth certificate and my social security. And I went to the airport. Man, they made my life miserable. I'm like, I'm, I'm handing you my birth certificate and my social security card, and you still don't... They put me in a plexiglass box with people that look like they wanted to hurt me and light their shoes on fire, okay? And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Like this 17-year-old scrawny white kid in tight pants. Like, I'm not going to do anything, right? I know what it's like to be presenting the best proof that you can, that you are who you say you are. And that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is just like, hey, I'm doing everything. I'm fulfilling scriptures. I'm showing the truth. And you guys are just not satisfied. You're just not satisfied with what I'm giving you. So verse 12. (laughs) He sighed, notice this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. The word sighed there is groaned. It's groaned. It's a rare word. It's only used 30 times in all of the Greek literature. And it's used to describe a person who is pushed to the limit of faithfulness. You ever have moments like that? Jesus is just, he's just had it. He's doing this. You know this? Have you done this? If you have kids, you've done this. Just, he's pushed to the He's just, I can't believe these guys. He sighs deep in his spirit. And here's what he says. He says, why does this generation, note that word, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He says it adamantly. I'm done. I'm not giving these guys anything more. The circus is over. He left them to get into the boat again and went to the other side. The point is Jesus is exhausted by this, listen, this deep and willful ignorance. This is not curiosity. This is not um, doubt or wondering. This is willful, informed, hard-hearted ignorance. We don't care if you're Jesus. We don't care. We just don't care. We are here to stumble you Now, you notice that Jesus uses the word generation. He says the issue here is the generation. The generation has this spirit of disbelief, of unbelief. What does he mean by that? Well, generation was kind of speaking to the culture of the day, the formation, if you will, of the day, the way people think and thought. Why don't you turn with me just really quick to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at a little bit at what Jesus had to say about this generation. He says in 11.16 of Matthew... He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? Here's Jesus' estimation of the generation. He says, it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, you're you're children. You're playing a game. you're You're not thinking rationally. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he's a demon, or he has a demon. And the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's Jesus saying. You see, well, there's really no pleasing you guys. The spirit of the power of the air, the generation of, of Jesus' day, uh, it didn't really matter what he did. They, they were basically just playing a game with him. And he goes on, this is some pretty scathing words here, Uh, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. What would that be? Bethsaida, Capernaum, the places where Jesus has been ministering all of this time. It's where Jesus did the majority, he did the lion's share, the most consolidated amount of miracles were in these cities. He says, woe to you, to these cities that do not repent, use woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida! for the mighty works done in you, if the mighty works had done in you had been done in Tyre, we talked about Tyre last week, the archetypically evil city, and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, that was really the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought, or you will will be exalted to heaven, you will be, will you be exalted to heaven? Question mark. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. How? Hardcore. Now, there's another interesting part here. Uh, there's there's a kind of a parallel when, when Jesus says a similar thing about this generation. They're seeking for signs. Just, just go over to chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil, note it, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Could you be a little more clear, Jesus? What do you think about this generation? Evil, okay, that is of the devil, and adulterous. That means that they're prostituting themselves out from Yahweh God. They are pimping themselves out to idols. They are an adulterous bride. God has sent his son, and they are going to kill his son. Is that clear enough? Evil, adulterous generation seeks a sign. He says, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? Well, what happened to Jonah? He got swallowed up for three days and then he came back. He's talking about the resurrection. He's saying there will be a sign and that sign will be the resurrection. Now, you'd think that the resurrection would be sufficient evidence for the scribes and the Pharisees to repent, right? Was it? What did they do? They tried to cover it up. They tried to cover it up because they knew if, if the news got out of the resurrected Christ, it all be over. They tried to cover it up. This is how hard-hearted their hearts were. So when Jesus says, back to our text now, when Jesus says the generation, uh, this generation um, is always seeking a sign. He, he has very hard things to say about the generation. But what is the generation? The generation is the cultural mood It's the thing that's forming the people that live here. Jesus came into a culture that had been formed. It was the generation. And it had been formed by false religion, shallow superficiality, false spirituality, and unbelief. This is what Jesus is coming into. Now listen to me. This is important. The disciples had been formed by this generation. Do you understand that? He didn't pick neutral guys. He didn't start discipleship from birth. He picked guys that had been formed and swam in the water of the culture of the day. He picked these guys. And now he's trying to get the formation of the world out of them and reshape them into different kind of thinking. And it's hard work. It's hard work. You know, it's not convincing that saves. The gospel saves in the soil of a receptive and believing heart. We know that to be true. Now, it's with this encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees in mind that, that we move into our next section, and that is where Jesus is going to have a chat with his boys on the boat. Okay? Jesus, is, he's had it with the Pharisees. He sees the, the, the hypocrisy. He sees the reality of their deep unbelief, and then he gets onto the boat with his guys. In verse 14, now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Mark notes that because it's important. They, did, they forgot. They had seven baskets. Whoops, forgot to grab one. Okay? they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And that's not like a loaf of Wonder Bread, okay? That's like a small cake. We've talked about this. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus is this very important lesson to teach his guys. This is important. He gets them away from the crowd. He gets them onto the boat where he has his most important conversations. You know, Either in the boat or in the house, away from the crowds. Guys, I have something I need to tell you. He looks down. In my imagination, I imagine this. Uh, He looks down, he sees in Peter's bag a a little loaf. Picks up that loaf. And the guys are going, oh, no. Is that all we brought? Oh. And Jesus is like, I'm going to use this as an illustration. And he's like, I'm going to tell you guys something about leaven, about the importance of leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. First of all, what's the picture here? What is leaven? Okay, leaven is essentially something, it's a rising agent. It's similar to yeast, okay? It's a rising agent. What it does is it basically ferments inside of the bread and it causes little air pockets so that your bread doesn't taste like gluten-free bread because gluten-free bread is terrible, right? (laughs) Why? Because it doesn't have those little pockets. It's just like eating tapioca balls or something. It's gross. (laughs) The idea is that this 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 leaven causes the bread to rise. But they didn't have like a little thing of baking soda that you keep in the back of your fridge, right? They didn't have yeast. So what you would do is you would keep back a tiny little bit of each loaf and you'd set it aside, kinda like sourdough starter. Is it written sourdough starter? You know, you keep back a little bit and then you put that into the new lump. And what happens is, when you let it prove, when you let it rise, um, that, that fermentation process begins to happen, and it goes from a little ball of dough into a big uh, you know, loaf, and then you put it in the oven and cook it, and it's delicious. Okay? That's the idea. Now, it would have been more like flatbread for them, uh, obviously. So the picture Jesus is saying here is saying there's leaven, and that leaven, um, the, the rising agent of it, the consuming agent of it, the forming agent of it, uh, I want you to watch out for that when it comes to the thinking of the Pharisees and Herod. Okay, now, you should be thinking, what do those two guys have in common? Not much. The Pharisees were the paid religious uh, you know, lawyers of the day. They were, they were really only concerned about their own piety, their own audience, and, and about the holiness of Jerusalem according to the traditions. The uh, Herod Antipas was a puppet stooge king that really only cared about uh, power and looking good and, and immorality. Ultimately, he was sleeping with his, sis, his brother's wife, and it's just a mess, right? Uh, Ryan, Pastor Ryan talked about that. Pastor Ryan, I like saying that. Pastor Ryan talked about that. Um, <clears throat> don't blush. Uh, I, uh, he, he talked about that a while ago, right? This, this messiness of... the of, of, So what do these two guys have in common, and how is there leaven in these guys? And here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that both of these guys had willfully chosen to reject belief in Christ. The Pharisees said Jesus was of the devil. Herod said Jesus is the ghost of John the Baptist. Either, both of them had written off Jesus, and both of them had adequate understanding to believe in Jesus, and both of them had willfully decided not to believe in Jesus. And so what Jesus is warning his guys here, he's saying, hey, watch out for this leaven. Watch out for it. It's going to get you, right? And here's what they say in verse 16 they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus does this again. <sighs> I guarantee it. Seriously, guys. They, they think he's upset that they didn't bring enough bread. He's trying to share with them a very important truth. He's trying to warn them. Why? Because he sees in them the very thing that he sees fully grown in the Pharisees. You see, the thing that had hold of the Pharisees was living within the belief and the faith or the lack thereof of his disciples. And Jesus, like a good rabbi, he pulls his guys, guys, you gotta watch out for this. And they're like, oh yeah, uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hey, we don't have any bread. And Jesus, I can, I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, hey, did you hear what I said? If it was my six-year, I'd be like, could you repeat that back to me? Did you can you tell me what I said? No? Okay. You know, we give these guys a hard time, but we're all, we're all the same, right? Yeah. <laughs> Their very response reinforces Jesus' concern that there was leaven in the midst of the disciples. Jesus didn't just say this randomly. He said this because with his perceptive, you know, Jesus is the best disciple maker there is. He's your disciple maker. He's discipling you right now. He looked into the heart, to the backbone of the disciples, and he saw leaven. He saw the spirit of unbelief. And he said, whatever it is that has consumed the Pharisees, it's consuming you, I can see it. You are being formed by this world. And you need to watch out. Because it's going to get you. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this. Now this is one of the most scathing questionings that Jesus gives his disciples. He's not yelling at them. But he's very, very... Upset, I think, (laughs) with the results of their uh, of them getting it. They're just not getting it. Verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, "Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread?" He's going to ask them seven questions. That's the first one. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread, guys? You really. I mean, first of all, think about it. I made. Remember, I made made bread before. He's going to say, "Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened?" Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? <laughs> do you not remember? <laughs> I mean, good grief. Jesus is like, bam, 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 bam. Yep. Come on, you don't remember? When I broke five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? 12. And they said to him, 12, yeah, 12. And, he, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? Guys, You don't get it. The way Jesus responds here, I believe, shows that they chose, listen, that they chose not to get it. That they had every reason to get it. That they should have gotten it. This isn't Jesus going, you know, guys, I I know, we'll keep working at it. This is Jesus going, guys, seriously? You're choosing to miss it. You're choosing to not listen. You're choosing to be formed by this world. You're choosing to tune me out. It's very different It's very different from not understanding, right? So what do we do with this? Let's zoom out really quick, just give you a few things to think about. The question I think that we need to answer this morning is how can we be discipled by Jesus and not by this world? How can we avoid the leaven of the Pharisees? Um, How do we keep the leaven of the world from forming us? That's the question that we need to ask. And I think that the answer is in the picture that Jesus gives. So let me give you three implications of leaven. Jesus was the master teacher. He didn't just pick things to to draw pictures with for no reason. He picked leaven for a reason. And there's some things about leaven I'd like you to think about. Okay, so three implications of leaven. Why did Jesus choose this picture? Number one, leaven is small and non threatening, but it always grows and it always consumes. It is small, non threatening, but it always grows. And it always consumes. No, I need, to, I need to make something clear here. When I say that the leaven of the Pharisees is unbelief, I'm not talking about doubt. Those are two very different things. I'm not, I don't think Jesus was concerned because some of his disciples were, were doubting. Doubting is actually honest. You know that? And true faith has doubt. In fact, if you're, if you're not wrestling with any doubt, I might go, have you thought through things? I mean, you know, doubting Thomas is just, he's, we're all like doubting Thomas. With the doubt's part of faith, right? Doubting is pure. Doubting says, you know, I'm just not sure. I'm open. I want to I know. We see how Jesus responds to the curious crowds. They're kind of, I wonder about this Jesus. He feeds them. He's compassionate. He loves them, right? He's kind to them. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is a denial of what you know to be true, at least in the way that I think Jesus is referring to it here. The unbelief Jesus cautions is any trace of willful, chosen, and disobedient denial of what you know to be true, an intentional dethroning of Jesus. I know you're the king, and I'm going to put you down here. And here's why I think it matters that leaven is small, because I think where the enemy would like to get you is is he knows that you would not be so bold, at least at first, to completely dethrone Christ. But he knows that he might be able to get you to do it in some small areas. Some small areas. You know, uh, you know those things where you're thinking, you know, I know what God thinks about this, but I'm just going to sort of turn off my hearing aid for just a minute. I know, I know what God thinks about this. I'm just going to kind of just set him aside for just a moment. I'm going to do my sin thing, and then he'll be there when I get back. You know what you're doing in that moment? You're allowing leaven in your life. The leaven of saying, I'm going to not believe right now. I'll believe later. We do that when we, we take verses or passages that we know what they really say, but we don't really like what they say. So we go find some commentary or some pastor is going to tell us on YouTube what we want it to say. You know? It's, what that's doing is it's, it's letting leaven into your loaf. It's, it's letting this, the spirit of unbelief letting Jesus be less than what Jesus is, letting Jesus not have total sovereignty over your life and just saying I'm just going to let a little bit of my sovereignty into my life. Small denials of Jesus lordship don't stay small. That's the picture. You get it? It grows and it overtakes. So Jesus after after this we'll look at it in a little while. Jesus has another conversation with his boys and he says, "Who do people say that I am?" Some say you're this, some say you're that. Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, well done. You got this from the Spirit. You didn't figure this out on your own. And then within minutes, Jesus says, maybe now is the opportune time to share some of the really important things that my disciples need to know, aka the cross. Hey guys, look, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be crucified. But don't worry. He tells them explicitly, I'm gonna come back, don't worry. And Jesus pulls, or Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Why would he do that? And what does is, what is Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What, what was happening right there in that moment? The, the, that what was happening in that moment was that Peter had been being formed by Satan. And by the Spirit at the same time. The Spirit had revealed to Peter this amazing truth. Simultaneously, Peter is allowing his mind and his heart to be leavened by unbelief. You can't go to the cross. That can't be right. That doesn't fit my narrative. That doesn't fit my paradigm. He's dethroning Jesus for just a moment. Jesus, you must be confused. That is the spirit of satanic thinking to dethrone dethrone Christ. You know where else we see it? So, um, Jesus is looking at these 12. He sees the leaven in them. He knows it's present. He's warning them. Do you think he's just warning them for no reason? Jesus knows there's one among the 12 that the leaven has already begun to work in. Who is it? Judas. When did Judas become the villain? That's a good question. I think John Sled has asked that before. When, When did Judas become the villain? I don't think it was day one. I think Judas was just one of the guys. I think at one point he wasn't really, he probably didn't have a clue he was going to be the one to reject Christ. But what happened was the leaven of the Pharisees found its way into the heart of Judas and it grew over three years to a point where Judas found himself selling the Lord Jesus. So, my point is, it starts small, but beware. Again, I'm not talking about doubt. I'm not talking about where you struggle to believe the Lord. I'm talking about intentional, willful rejection of the Lordship of Christ in your life. Be careful. Be careful. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us in this text. Number two, the second particular of the picture of leaven is it is invisible to the human eye. And therefore, it is impossible for us to sort out once it's, stored, once it's stirred in. This is another reason I think Jesus chose leaven. It's because once you take that lump from the old lump and you stir it into the new lump, you can't tell which is which. You can't tell which is which. Only Jesus can tell. And and that's why you need to come to him and you need to let him do the sorting. You need to come to him and you need to let him do the sorting. As believers, we must be aware of the basic truth that we do not know what we do not know. We we are very good at tricking ourselves into thinking there's no leaven in me. You know, And you probably, you probably don't think there is, but Jesus knows better. And this is why we come to him. We come to him daily. We come to him regularly, and we say, Lord, search the depths of my wicked heart. I believe my own lies. I tell myself falsehoods, and I believe them. The spirit of unbelief does live within me. Until kingdom come, there is leaven within me. Lord, come and remove that. And that's why we come to the word of God and we come to the spirit of God and we let him work that out of us. Only he can do it. You can't do it yourself. He's the great physician. He separates truth from false religion. That's why Jesus went off on the the religious leaders. He said, yeah, the tithing, the prayers, it's a show. It's leaven. Jesus saw right through it. It was false, fake, phony, hypocrisy. Come to Christ. He's so kind He's so gracious. He wants to help you remove that from your life. It's not easy to see. It's not easy to find. And this is why God gave us the grace of the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices, where we come before Jesus as our apprentice and we say, Lord, would you work this stuff out of me through my time in the scripture, through my time in reflection on your word, through my time of repentance, through my time with the body of Christ, Sometimes God will use someone in your life to expose something you don't see. A lot of times it's your spouse. They see your leaven. You can't lie to them. They know. They see when you're, when, when you're letting this, yeah, I'm going to set Christ aside just right here for this little bit. Right? They see that. Number three, the reason I think Jesus uses leaven is that, is that leaven is a leftover. It will therefore affect every future lump in the same way. The point is is that if you allow this leaven into the new lump, you've spoiled the new lump. And I think what Jesus is getting here is, it's the same lesson he was trying to teach them with the wineskins. You can't take the new thing Jesus is doing and, uh, listen to this word, syncretize it to the new thing. The old thing. You can't take this old wineskin and and put new wine in it. You can't take the new lump with the kingdom of heaven uh, being this leavening agent and put it with the old one. It'll spoil it. It'll ruin it. This was the fall of Israel. Take a lesson from Old Testament Israel. Israel's fall wasn't just that they worshiped other gods. It's that they added their gods to the temple with Yahweh. They're like, let's keep Yahweh God and let's add Baal. More is always more, right? Wrong. That syncretism, which when you put two things together. Jesus is saying, beware. You can't have your gods and your God. You can't. You can't put the two things together. It was the demise of Israel. If we take anything from this world and try to baptize it and put it with Jesus, it just doesn't work. Jesus is saying, you need a whole new lump. And that's the beauty of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. You are born Again. Born again, whole new lump. Now, don't take the death from false religion and import it into the life of Christ in the gospel. Don't do that. You'll ruin it. You'll ruin it. And we do, we do that. We do that all the time. We've done that in this false American gospel, right, where we, we really want to have life in, in pursuit of happiness and we want to we have all a bunch of stuff and a bunch of good experiences and have an easy life and we're like, can we fit the gospel into that? That'd be great. We could have both. Forget the cross. Forget the cross. Let's just take the crown, right? That's syncretism. Don't do that. Jesus is saying you need a whole new lump. So in conclusion, I just want to ask you some questions. Who or what has the single greatest formative influence on your life? What is it? Think about it. What has the most, and is it Christ? Does Christ have hold of your life? Does God's voice speak louder and carry more weight than any other thing in your life? That's a hard question. Are there small areas of willful unbelief in your life that need to be surrendered? Are there? The sobering reality of this passage is that there is a little bit of leaven in all of us. And we need a rabbi. We need Jesus to work that out of us. It only happens when you come to him and you say, form me, form me, form me. I don't want to be formed by this world. Guys, you are formed by this world every day. The second you pick up your stupid smartphone, it's forming you. The news is forming you. Documentaries are forming you. Social media is forming you. The radio is forming you. Everything's forming you. Come to Christ. Let him form you. That's what discipleship is. It's being formed into the image of Christ. And can I just say this? It takes work. I thought we were saved by grace, not by works. You are. You are saved by grace, not by works. You are sanctified by grace and works. It takes work to be sanctified. It takes work. Get to work. Get to work. For the good news, this is the good news, though. The good news is that Jesus is at work. He's at work, and the good news is that Jesus is compassionate to the curious, and he continues with the confused disciples. He doesn't walk away and be like, you guys, I'm done. He continues to work with them. He continues to work in them. Isn't that good news? That's great news. All right, having said that, we're going to have some time of discussion, but let me pray really quick. I think we got about 10 minutes. Are you guys up for that? You're like, can we just go to lunch? No. Okay. Okay. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for Mark chapter eight. I pray, Lord, that even though this is, this is a sort of a serious tone to it, God, that we would take it seriously, that we would acknowledge that there may be this, this unbelief, this willful unbelief within us, and we don't want it to overtake us. We want you, Jesus, the rabbi, to come and shape us, to come sort us, to come sift us and work in us, God. And Lord, I pray right now as we engage into the life of the body, Lord, as we, as we listen to the thoughts of one another, uh, God, that, that if there's any feeling of nervousness or awkwardness or whatever, that, that that spirit would just be gone. Lord, that we would feel confident being able to have a conversation about these truths. That, Lord, we're, we're not here to examine one another. We're here to, to love one another, encourage one another. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in these groups, that we'd minister to one another, Lord, as we be the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.